us for good to see you guys today and if you're visiting with us we're really glad that you're here and you know we don't take ourselves completely too seriously we take god very seriously but not ourselves and it seems to work for us so we hope you feel welcome uh we're continuing to get to know jesus and so you probably noticed there that's what it says on that slide and we unpacked the first part of this story last week and because there's so much in it we split it up over the course of a few weeks uh, and so if you missed that, you missed out on a lot, but here's the deal. We actually have a website, and there are podcasts of all of the teachings up there. If you want to check those out, uh, they were there waiting for you. You can fill your whole weekend with those. Anyway, um, yeah, if you, if you desire. So well, here's the deal. I just want to set the stage so that we make sure we're all caught up at least as much as we can be. So uh, Jesus is the center of attention at this party. That's what's going on as we pick it up. Uh, Jesus called Matthew Levi to join him as a disciple, right? I was on the outside when you said you needed me. He could have written that, right? Matthew Levi could have written that. Uh, So Matthew Levi throws, are you guys awake? Come on now. Okay, good. You're here. Good. So he throws this huge party. This huge party, he invites Jesus. Jesus brings some of his disciples. Matthew Levi brings a bunch of his friends which was kind of a problem. We find out all of these associates from his old life. And uh, Jesus is there with his friends. We have Pharisees. We have scribes. We have John the Baptist disciples. All of these dudes are there hanging out. But everybody that's in this room, they all have the same goal. And I think that sometimes this is a part of this that we miss. Everybody that's in the room really just wants to get to know Jesus. They're all there because they want to find out more about this guy. Word was spreading. Lives are being changed. And so they're like, I want to know if this is the real deal. I want to know if he is the Messiah, if he is the guy, if he is the man. All these things, are they true? So we have this party. And listen, let's not sanitize this story, okay? This isn't a flannel graph. Some of you have no idea what that is. How about this? This isn't Veggie Tales. Okay, listen, here's the deal. This was a party. And when we say it was a party, when scripture says it was a party, it means it was a party. There was drinking, there was laughter, there was dancing, there was celebration and all of this joy in the center of the room because we find Jesus right in the middle of the joy. And so it looked probably a lot like this, at least where Jesus and Matthew and a lot of his friends were hanging out at the center of the room. So Jesus is right in the middle of all of the joy. And we're going to actually return to that in just a second, that idea. But on the fringes of the room, you have the Pharisees and the scribes and these others that cannot believe that Jesus would be sharing a meal with these scoundrels, with these dastardly men. As we discussed last week, especially in this time and place, tax collectors were not highly thought of. As a matter of fact, uh, they would often use extortion in order to profit or to grow their own personal finances while they collect taxes. That's how they did it. And so they were considered to be the worst of the worst. And so often when you see in Scripture, you see the phrase tax collectors and sinners, you'll see it together. And sinners was sort of this generic catch-all for thieves, prostitutes, and murderers, basically the worst of the worst. So those two together is an idiom that you'll find over and over again trying to prove a point there, basically. And so uh, Jesus is in the middle of this situation. He's surrounded by these people. He's ruffled some feathers. And what he has to say is this. Guys, listen, the relationship is more important than the ritual. 
the things that the scribes and the Pharisees and others were talking about and pointing out. So the meal continues, and so does this interaction with the Pharisees and all these other guys, uh, the guys that basically have secluded themselves or have pulled themselves to the outer fringes of this party that's going on in the middle of the room. And so we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 5, verse 33. And so all of these guys, Pharisees, scribes, disciples of John the Baptist, say to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So often when we see these encounters, I think especially early on with Jesus, we view them through this lens of the hostile interactions that he will have later with some of these guys or some of the representatives of these groups later on in his ministry. But it's important to remember that these were legitimate questions for them to be asking him. They were simply trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? Why is this happening? They considered Jesus to be a fellow Pharisee, and actually his teachings had a lot in common with theirs. Lots of things lined up as far as their viewpoints were concerned. And and Mark uh, 2.18 actually tells us that it's John the Baptist's disciples that asked this question. But the real deal of what's going on in all of this is it's Yeshua or Jesus' application versus their interpretation of what was happening that was in the middle of most of these exchanges. And so today, we're going to kind of go through a lot of stuff. We have a lot of material to cover, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that this is all about relationship, okay? And so if you love to dig into the Word and all the other stuff, you're probably going to love this. If you're a person that tends to fall asleep when that stuff is happening, uh, I'm going to just have your neighbor gently nudge you. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, so the idea here, though, is it's all about what God commands us to live out, how he wants us to live, uh, what he's commanding us to do, so to speak. So they asked Jesus, why are you guys having a party and celebrating with these sinners while John's disciple and the rest of us are fasting and praying? Basically, the question they're asking is, why aren't you doing what we're doing? And just a side note here, if you go through life and this is your attitude... Why aren't you doing what I'm doing? Like, if you've made it your mission to be the sin police, you're going to be disappointed a lot. And it's a pretty miserable existence. So the idea isn't so much pointing out what other people are doing as it is that we're supposed to do the things that God commands us to do. And and within a relationship with other people, we might be able to speak into those moments. But these guys are asking, it's like, why aren't you doing what we're doing? Now, I want to be clear. This isn't just about fasting. This isn't, you know, because a lot of times I've seen the scripture taken to mean, well, we don't need to fast then. And that's not what he's saying. Uh, The deal here is that Jewish people would fast on certain days, obviously, as prescribed by the Torah. And the reference to John's disciples here is the key to understanding this. John was in prison at this moment. And so part of what would happen is if uh, your teacher was in a hard situation or someone that you loved was having a hard time, often the response for a believer would be to fast and to pray. We see the disciples doing this, right, later when Jesus is arrested. So these guys were likely fasting and praying on behalf of their master who had been taken into prison. Not only that, but there were lots of voluntary fasts that uh, the Pharisees and others would do twice a week, things that they would elect to do or choose to do as a part of their personal observance. But regardless, what's really cool about Jesus is he uses John the Baptist's own metaphor in this moment 
to describe what they should be doing. What he says is this. He uses some, his, that metaphor of himself as the, the bridegroom and how we should all celebrate. How many of you know that weddings are meant to be happy occasions? Would you agree with that? Right? Listen, our weddings don't even hold a candle to Jewish weddings. And what happens, especially in this time and place. So how many of you folks that are here that are married vividly remember all of the joyful details of your wedding day? Just go on, raise your hand. Yeah, okay, a few of you, but not many. When I counsel people to be married, one of the things that I often say is like, listen, anything in your special day that you could put in the hands of someone else to do, you should do that. You should get as many people involved to take care of all the stuff so that you can enjoy the day. Because one of the things that can happen with weddings is they can end up just kind of being a dog and pony show. They can be this little mini performance or like the bride and groom basically hosting a party for all of these people and not actually getting to enjoy the day for what it is. And that day actually represents this promise, this covenant between two people, a man and a woman, right before God and their friends and everyone. It's totally this life-giving thing. And often we get caught up in all of the drama that comes with it. So if you're getting ready to get married, that's my advice to you. Have other people handle stuff if you can. Again, our concept of a joy-filled wedding does not hold a candle to weddings in Jewish culture. Weddings would last for days, guys. Think about it. You have people that are traveling on foot to a place to honor friends in the middle of this thing. So you're just going to send everybody home? No. You've got days of stuff planned. And so the joy of a wedding actually took precedence over everything. Check this out. In Judaism, weddings and mourning stand in antithesis of each other. Because remember, that's kind of what we're talking about here with Jesus and his friends. Weddings require rejoicing. That word require is the right word. Weddings required rejoicing. So the next time you have cousin Martha that's there with the sour face, griping about whatever it is at the wedding, just say, hey, listen, this wedding requires rejoicing. Come on, Martha, pick it up, right? Jewish law suspends mourning rites for the sake of weddings and forbids weddings during times of national mourning. And then the last one, of course, is this. A wedding procession always took precedence over a funeral. So both funerals and weddings in this culture would have like a little mini parade of all the people through the city. And we'll actually talk about what Jesus does in this situation later on in several weeks from now. But if there were two parades and they happened to meet in the streets... The wedding procession always took prominence. The mourners, the funeral folks, would stop and allow the wedding to pass. So while it was appropriate for John's disciples in this situation to pray and to fast for the release of their master who was in prison, Jesus seems to be indicating that there's something more important going on here. Yeshua, he was still present with his disciples. Not only his disciples, but even his potential disciples in that room, because there were some. John the Baptist had told his disciples, if you'll remember, listen... Uh, this guy is the guy. Uh, I'm just happy to be here. It's time for him to be in the spotlight, and I'm just going to take a few steps back. He'd already told his disciples this, right? So they knew this. Souls were being redeemed. Matthew, Levi, and perhaps many others in that room had decided to follow Jesus. So this was a time to rejoice. That's what he was saying. This is exciting. This should be fun, guys. Come on. So it would have been inappropriate for them in this moment to fast. He's saying, he's like, listen, guys. Come to the table. Join us. It's a time for joy. Let me pour out the best that I have to offer into your life. 
And then he goes on to say, listen, right now I'm here with my disciples, but a day is going to come when that's not going to be the case, which is the first time that we have him uh, giving foreshadowing of his death that's to come. But then he says, so then you can mourn. And again, Jesus is not speaking against fasting or mourning. These things were woven into the fabric of who he was and of his culture and his life and the lives of his disciples. But there's another thing that we need to talk about here that's probably not obvious to us. And so this one is going to get a little bit teachy. You're like, well, what just happened? Wasn't that teachy? Listen, you don't even know, okay? No, I think it's important for us to understand that uh, there are some things here within this culture that maybe we're not aware of that I want to point out. So their community was growing. And being a part of a community is sharing the experiences of those around you, but especially in this day and age. And so we have these other rabbinic writings that suggest that failing to mourn or failing to rejoice appropriately, basically to share the experiences of the people in your community, is equal to separating yourself from community, which was a very bad thing. So, for example, today is Memorial Day, right? And it's a time in a way for us, right? It's a time of mourning. It's a time of remembrance for those who have fallen, for those who have basically sacrificed their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. And so it's a time where we mourn as a country, at least we're supposed to. But it's also, in a way, a time of celebration. You have a lot of folks out there that collectively choose to celebrate. And so it's one of those weird things where, yeah, it's sad, but then there's also a a freedom that comes with the fact that folks have given their lives and that they've sacrificed. And so part of being in a community is if somebody's going through something, they need to know that you're with them. If a friend of yours has lost a family member or if they're going through something hard, they need to know that they have people with them. If your friend gets good news, maybe their kid's getting married or something awesome, or birth, right, a birth of a child, that's a time to rejoice with your friends within community. And so that's a shared experience, and and all of these guys would have known about this. So the only people keeping the Pharisees and the others from the table were themselves. They were the only ones. And Jesus shares all of this stuff within the context of a party, the celebration for these new relationships that are being formed with sinners and outsiders of society as they come to the table to receive Jesus. That's worth celebrating, isn't it? Let me say that again. Outsiders of society coming to the table to receive Jesus. That's worth celebrating, isn't it? Okay, I'm still not convinced. That's worth celebrating, isn't it? Okay, much better. I'm glad that you're with me now. So the next thing that Jesus does is he shares what I'm calling a double parable. Basically, two stories back to back to give an example of what he's talking about. And so that's the next part of Luke here. Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. So Jesus is referring to two different things that everyone in the room would have been familiar with. We have maybe a little less familiarity with it, so I want to try and unpack these. The first one is that any tailor or any seamstress that's worth their salt knows that you don't yank a piece of cloth out of a brand new piece of clothing and sew it on an old piece of clothing 
to patch it up. Because what's going to happen? Number one, you're going to ruin both of them. Because that patch is going to shrink at a different rate, and the stitches will eventually pull out of that. And so basically you're left with two garments that have been ruined. And then the second one is the example of the wineskins. And so the ancient custom here was this. They would take this unfermented grape juice, right? And they would put it into goat skins. And I think this is just kind of cool and a little bit weird. But basically, it was a goat skin with the neck and the legs tied off. So it's like you're walking around with a goat bag, right? (laughs) Right? Pretty cool. And so when the juice would ferment, of course, that would cause expansion. And these new wineskins, because they were elastic, would expand with the fermentation and with the wine. Now, of course, this whole conversation takes place at a party. And it's all in reference specifically to Jesus' choice of disciples and his choice of company. And Jesus is basically saying here, listen, guys, it's difficult to teach an old dog new tricks. He was using the same teachings that the Pharisees would have known. The same teachings that date all the way back to 500 years before his birth, uh, when the rabbis were actually in exile with the house of Judah and Babylon. These things that he's referring to were written. And if you, don't, if you can't place that, it's basically when uh, the stories of Daniel and the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all that stuff happened there. So even when in exile, these rabbis who were now displaced from their homeland, continued to teach, and they continued to make rulings, and they continued to say, well, listen, we know that God still wants us to live for Him, so how do we live for Him in this new context where we don't have the things that we usually do, where we don't have the temple, where we don't have all of these things? And so they would make these rulings, and they would write these things out. So Torah simply means instruction or revelations or teaching. And these rabbis connected Wine with the Torah, symbolically speaking. So in the Pirkei Avot, which is a compilation of all of these ethical teachings and maxims that have been passed down from rabbis all the way back to Moses, which is pretty cool to think about. In all these writings, this is what they say. And I'm just going to read it to you guys because I feel like it's important for you to know. So they say it here. He who learns from the young unto what can he be compared? He can be compared to one who eats unripe grapes and drinks unfermented wine from his vat. But he who learns from the old, unto what can he be compared? He can be compared to the one who eats ripe grapes and drinks old wine. Rabbi Mir said, do not pay attention to the container, but pay attention to that which is in it. There is a new container full of old wine, and here is an old container which does not even contain new wine. And there you go, there's the reference for that. So what in the world is this? Was this reference a part of your education? I'm curious. Maybe some of you. This gives us an indication of what's happening in this culture. All of the learned men in attendance would have understood this. They would have read and studied the ethics of the fathers, and they uh, would have a connection to this. But here's basically what it is. The vessels for containing wine in this parable are not institutions, religious movements, or teachings. And I don't know about you, but I've always heard that it was. The vessel containing the wine are individuals. Jesus is talking about the people surrounding him and the others commenting on the people surrounding him. The wine is the teaching or the Torah that the individual consumes or contains. Now remember, when we study scripture, anytime we do this, we have to go back and we have to do our very best job that we can to place ourselves into the culture and the context that it was given. And we have to ask questions like, well, what did it mean to these guys? 
What would these guys have known? Uh, what framework would they bring this to light in? What would it mean to the people who heard it? And in this case, what does it mean to the person who said it? And this happens a lot with the parables of Jesus. There's lots of uh, deep diving that we're going to have to do when we're unpacking those. But it wouldn't make sense, this is the other thing, for Jesus to make this general ruling or this general statement that rules out all fasting as some people claim he's doing here. We know that Jesus fasted, right? I mean, we have it right there in Scripture. And fasting was a part of following the Torah, and we know that Jesus certainly never broke any of the commandments, nor would he expect his immediate followers and his disciples to do. So the bottom line, the point of all this discussion is that it frames this entire conversation. It's all about Jesus' choice of associates, his disciples, not one institution over another. So all of the people that were in his company in this moment, I mean, we're pretty sure that they were all Jewish. And so his references would have been understood. Now, I want you to notice, Jesus is not excluding anyone in the room. There's no exclusion here in anything that he says. Uh, you, he's not saying... Again, I want to be clear. He's not saying, listen, you guys aren't fit for my teaching. Because that would contradict the very grace and mercy of God. We know that Jesus, right, he's for everybody. So what are you saying, Jesus? What are you saying, Pastor Bill? Well, I'm about to tell you. In the midst of the celebration, Jesus is saying something that's awesome. And that's the proper use of the word awesome. He's saying something that's awesome, that's amazing. He's saying, listen... In the midst of this celebration, I'm for all of you. I'm available to all of you. He's highlighting this flexibility that's going to be required in his kingdom to accept his teaching. And so for some, actually I'd say for all of us, it requires humility. It requires a humbleness to come under a new teacher, whether you're a brand new person to the faith, a disciple of John the Baptist that was in the room, or whether you were a scribe or a Pharisee that probably like, knew more than anyone in the room about the Torah and about the ethics. And so for us, when it comes to Jesus, a prideful attitude or an unwillingness to submit, it's not going to work. He requires everything. He wants it all. He wants everything that we have to offer. He wants us to bring it to the table and surrender to him. You might remember this fella, Benjamin Franklin, handsome man he was. He says this, being ignorant is not so much a shame as being unwilling to learn. And I think that's true. In this moment, Jesus has specifically chosen, in a way, a blank canvas of untrained men to begin to write upon. The goal of Jesus was to bring everyone together in the kingdom. But many people were surprised by what that looked like in reality. And I think this is one of those instances. They were surprised at what was happening. So in this setting, the scholars and all the other people who surround him had so far, at least in the conversation it seems, proven to be inflexible in their observations. Maybe they were there and they wanted to be a part. Like, I want to be one of his disciples, but there's no way I'm sitting at that table, dude. I know that guy, and he charged me triple last week. That ain't happened. But the question is, were they flexible enough to accommodate his teachings and his interpretations? Would they sit like Jesus is at the table with outsiders? 
their response to what they saw happening at this party seems to indicate that the Pharisees and the scribes and John the Baptist's disciples and maybe even some others were inflexible, like the wineskin or the old garment. But it's also important to remember, anytime we encounter something like this in Scripture, that new and old aren't necessarily parallels to good or bad. Now, our current society wants to make it all about youth. And listen, you know me, I love youth, I love kids. But our current society seems to champion youth over age. But this example is written in a culture that values and respects age. And we could learn some things from that. And by the way, when you're talking about wine, usually isn't older better, right? Come on, don't act like you've never had wine before, people. (laughs) Woo! Okay. Remember, this is a party, okay? It wasn't grape juice. That whole fermenting thing we just talked about wasn't grape juice. So when you're talking about wine, the older is the better. So if the thought of your next birthday is making you sad... Just remember that wine only gets finer with age, ladies. Right? It's true. So, but this didn't mean that they were excluded. Wine skins could be reconditioned to achieve elasticity. And Jesus wasn't saying, listen, guys, you're just out of luck. You just don't get it. Sorry. Far from it. He was calling them to celebrate with him. That was the issue. It's like, guys. Bunch of wallflowers, get in here. Come on. This is fun. However, if you're mourning with your old teacher, you may not be able to rejoice with your new teacher. So on Friday night, I had this opportunity to relive my teenage years before the mighty striper. Striper was the first rock concert I ever went to. And this was back, and I actually have the date, September 24th, 1985 at the Casey Opry House. Woo-hoo-hoo, right? Yeah, the Casey Opry House. Here we go. So teenage me in this moment with all of these men that looked like women. I'd never seen anything like this. Well, not the men and women part, but that's another story. The whole rock part of this thing, right? Like, it completely changed my life, my paradigm. I would even say it was a bit of a spiritual moment for me when I realized that God could truly use anything. Even spandex. So, for those of you that don't know, obviously, Striper continues to write and to record and to tour to this day. And I'm going to tell you guys, they have not lost a step musically. They were amazing. But there was this moment on Friday night where this message came to mind and the story that Jesus finds himself mixed up in. So, Striper played many of their hits, of course. And they play them in kind of a cool way where they did like these banks, two or three, four songs from each of the records. And it was really cool. Um, and so they were trying to represent all of their material, but then they would also throw in, you know, some new songs. And if you've ever gone to like a concert where you're going to see a band and let's say it's journey or whoever, but then, Hey, we're going to play a new one for you. 
right? <laughs> There's this disengagement that seems to happen where that's the time to go check out the merch table. Oh, I just remembered I needed to use the restroom or I want to go get a refreshment or whatever it is. It just seemed like there were these moments where like everybody was engaged and then we're going to do a new one for you. And then everybody's just kind of like, oh, right? You could tell that the old songs were the ones that the disciples of Striper were there to hear. Because, especially in those formative teenage years, you connect with the music in such a way that it brings back memories. It brings, like, all of these things rush back to your brain. And it's almost like these endorphins are uh, stimulated when you hear these songs that take you back to something. And so, it wasn't that the new songs were bad. They weren't. They were great. And... They actually even acknowledged this, the lead singer, Michael Sweet. Um, he acknowledged this tendency for the crowd to disengage. And so when he introduced one of the new songs, he made sure to say, Now listen, Striper loves the old songs, but we're all about the new songs too. And we want to keep making new music for you guys and new generations of fans. And, and what he said was really cool. And again, the new songs were good, but they weren't the old songs. And so you had this moment where all of these people, many of which who were rocking the big hair yet again, Probably been a while for some of them. Some of them didn't have a lot of hair to rock, just being honest. The jackets, the shirts, putting that earring back in for the show. One rather robust gentleman who I think probably was a grandpa by this point, actually wearing spandex. Not going to lie. A lot of respect for that guy, though, because he was, he was making it happen. He was rocking it. But the point is that the people that were there, they wanted to hear the old songs. They wanted to hear the old teaching. And it's similar in the story with Jesus where the kingdom that he's bringing, that he's talking about in this instance, would require flexibility from everyone. If you're new to this thing, listen. We got some rules around here. If you've been in this a long time, listen. You might need to loosen up just a little bit. From the most schooled Pharisees and even the brand new disciples across the board, flexibility was going to be important. Because the reach of the kingdom was even further than any of them could imagine. They had no idea. Think about those disciples, right? All those disciples, there's a point where I think almost every one of them wanted to quit. They thought that they were done. Jesus is dead. Oh, we don't even know what to do. Everybody disappears. What's our next move, guys? I don't know. I think I'm just going to try and stay alive. That sounds good. They had no idea what God was going to do with them. And the New Testament documents the development of that early group of believers and demonstrates that the disciples of Jesus were constantly working through it, figuring out how to be flexible with each other. But here's what's cool. Paul brings it all together, and it's in Romans 12, and here's what he says. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight and repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So these Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus are being called to come together and to love and support each other and to work it out, basically. So what does all this mean to us? 
like, yeah, that's cool. I see what you're talking about. That's fantastic. What does this mean to me when I go back to work on Tuesday? How do I do this? Well, to start with, as disciples of Jesus, we are the vessels that he's pouring into. We are the ones that he's pouring into now. Jesus didn't come to inform us. He came to transform us, right? He doesn't want to just fill you up with knowledge. He wants to change you. He totally has an agenda for you, by the way. And if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, he generously offers his best for you. It's like, taste and see, the scripture says, that the Lord is good. Give him a try. You won't be disappointed. And if you're a new disciple of Jesus, welcome to the table. You're surrounded right now by men and women who love you immediately. You're a part of the family and who have a lot to give and help you on this walk. Because we can't do it on our own. We need each other. But that takes humility. It takes a desire to grow as a disciple and also a willingness to reach out to someone else and say, hey, I need some help. And if you're a long-time disciple of Jesus here today, but your life basically looks the same as it did before you found him, it's time to start asking some hard questions. Are we so mired or sunken in to our old way of living and our old tricks uh, that we've become inflexible as believers? Are we more provoked and offended by the things we read and hear and see? Or does our heart break and long for the folks that we hear these things from to find the mercy and compassion and love of the Lord? Do, this is convicting, do we look more like Jesus now than we did last year? Because to me, discipleship is growth. And if that's not true, then I need to take a look. We need to take a look at ourselves. Every time we ask that question, we should look more like Jesus than we did the day before. Now, the good news is not on us, right? I mean, he can help us with that. It's, we're not saving ourselves. Our salvation comes through him. He offers grace and mercy and love, no matter how many times we blow it. Throughout God's word, wine is symbolic of joy. And here, Jesus is the source of joy in the middle of the scene. And then today we learn that wine is also symbolic of God's word. And what is Jesus? He's the word made flesh. John 15, 11, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, listen, everything that I've taught you guys is for one reason, that my joy may be in you and that my joy, that you be made full of it, not your joy, my joy, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So when Jesus is at the center of our life and community, joy follows. It does. You see it. Are we the kind of wineskins that the master longs to pour wine into? Are we willing to receive the vintage that he offers? And do we receive it joyfully? Or are we rigid and inflexible? Maybe you look around this world 
Or maybe you look around your own life and you've just kind of given up. You're like, man, there is no way I can make any difference in any of this stuff. Maybe you've decided to warm the bench until Jesus calls you home. By the way, that one's not in his playbook. Have we abandoned our ability to grow and stretch? Are we flexible enough to welcome in all who come, even if they don't look like or talk like or act like us? This time I'd like to invite any of the elders or leaders or others that would be willing to pray with people just to come on up here and maybe just kind of gather around here in the front. On this Memorial Day, guys, as we remember the men and the women of our country who gave the lives to preserve our freedom, I think it's important that we take some time to bring these things to the one who gave us everything to make us truly free. Jesus gave everything to make us truly free. He wants to pour into you. He wants to pour into me. Are we going to be willing and flexible vessels? Do we sing that old hymn, wherever you lead, I'll go, only to complain when we don't like the course ahead or stop when we can't see the next step or to turn and run when we don't like the weather? Here's the good news. Jesus is throwing party. And you're invited. He's invited each of us to the table. And what you did yesterday doesn't matter to him nearly as much as what you'll do today. All that stuff, the burdens, the choices that you've made in your life, the things that constantly come up in your brain that remind you of your failings. He just says, come, follow me. The stuff of yesterday isn't what he's thinking about. He's thinking about how you'll respond to him today. Will you surrender and allow him to change you? This time, if you'd like to come forward and pray, we have these guys available. We actually have an altar over here. (laughs) If you want to pray there, let's just make this space and take this moment. Just asking what he wants us to do with this. The places, things we need to surrender and let go of and give to him. What we do today can change not only our history, but world history. Father, thank you. I pray that uh, today we would just have softened hearts to you and that whatever you want to do through your word through this invitation mercy and love that you give us we just surrender to you